First Chronicles chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Adam, Sheth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalaliel, Jared, Henoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshach, and Tiras. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Riphoth, and Togarma, and the sons of Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. The sons of Ham, Cush, and Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ra'ama, and Sabteca. And the sons of Ra'ama, Sheba, and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be mighty upon the earth. And Mitzrayim begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Lehabim, and Naphtuhim, and Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, of whom came the Philistines, and Kaphtarim. And Canaan begat Zidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite also, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemarite, and the Hamathite. The sons of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram, and Uz, and Hul, and Jether, and Meshach. And Arphaxad begat Shelah, and Shelah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, because in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan begat Almadad, and Sheleph, and Hazarmaveth and Jera, Hadaram also, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Ebal, and Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Shem, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Sereg, Nahor, Terah, Abram, the same is Abraham. One of the one of the questions that um, this first chapter of Chronicles presents to us is why does the chronicler choose to trace his genealogy all the way back to the beginning? And it's a, it's a question that has some peculiar difficulty in it because the chronicler is not going to tell us that in express terms. Maybe it's a, the kind of question that at the end of the day we'll never be able to answer with absolute certainty, 
but we can probably from other parts of the Chronicles, and remember first and second Chronicles in our Bibles are by composition actually just one book. So in the books of the Chronicles or in the book of the Chronicles, uh, might we be able to glean an answer or maybe at least a suggestion as to why the Chronicler chooses to go all the way back? And with that qu question stated in that way right now, just put a bit of a pin in it because I do think if, if we go back to some of our first principles with respect to biblical interpretation, uh, we might very well be able to get uh, get an answer, at least with some tolerable confidence. And um, the mention of Abraham in verse 27, which is not a, at all surprising in a in a um, in a uh, genealogy in the Bible, it might very well give us the clue we need to explain why the antecedent part is chosen. It's not a question all that different from why is it that Matthew in tracing the genealogy of Jesus Christ only goes back to Abraham, so he wants to highlight David and Abraham, but Luke on the other hand chooses to go all the way back to, to Adam. Here the chronicler has chosen to go all the way back to Adam and it raises the question why? What's its purpose? What is it doing there? So let's just stick a pen in that for just a moment and go back to some of our first principles of interpretation. So turn with me again to Luke chapter 24. You'll know this very well by this point, and so uh, I won't go on at great length. But here, um, Jesus, after his resurrection, opens the minds of his disciples to understand the scriptures as a whole. And at this point, the only scriptures are the Old Testament scriptures. But um, he's highlighting the principal message. So when we count the books of the Old Testament, we count 39 books. They're written over the course of about a thousand years. Um, you know, a goodly handful of different authors uh, through that span of time, but ultimately one divine author. What is it all about? Um, what are the principal teachings? And if we were to summarize it just in one word, we might say that ultimately this the scriptures teach us about Jesus about the uh, redemption that he would bring to mankind after the fall. But Jesus gives us a, a threefold outline in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Let's look at that uh, again. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day 
and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So again, in the, in the rhetoric of the passage in verse 44, we, we have something already very extraordinary, that in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and that would just be a, an itemized way of referring to the whole Old Testament, in all of its principal divisions, there is stuff about the Christ. But then uh, Luke strengthens the statement by saying that Christ opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and there's no itemizing there. Like, what, it, what is the point of the scriptures as a whole? What are its teachings? Not just this or that passage, but, but what is it about? Uh, considered in kind of like the broadest and grandest way. And so then the Lord gives us a three-point outline. The Christ must suffer, verse 46. Point two, he must rise. And then point three at verse 47, the gospel of the remission of sins had to be preached to the nation. I, to the nations. I, I do confess that mostly when I've taught Old Testament, I have focused on points one and two, the, the Christ himself, and the proclamation of the gospel, probably done a little bit less in balance with respect to the fact that it was always promised from the very beginning that this gospel was for the nations of the world. Even when it was laid up for safekeeping, as it were, in the midst of the people of Israel, ultimately it was always intended to be a blessing to the nations. And what's, what's fascinating is this lesson taught by the Lord Jesus was something that was certainly grasped by his disciples. One, you see Luke gets it here and he, he records it. You can find it in slightly different terms in 1 Peter chapter 1 where he, give, he gives two points this, the teaching of the prophets, the teaching that they themselves only half understood, uh, had to do with the sufferings of the Christ, point one, and the glory that should follow, which would capture the resurrection and the proclamation to the, to the nation. So he gives it in two points, but it's the same idea. Paul grabs it. You can see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ suffered katatas grafas, according to the scriptures, and he rose again, and you get the repetition of katatas grafas. But um, a text we've done a little less with, turn with me to Acts chapter 26, and I'll give you just another illustration of this. So remember, by this point in Acts, um, Paul has already been arrested by uh, the Romans. Felix has passed Paul on to Festus. Um, Festus is not quite sure what to do with the with the principal ad, uh, dispute between Paul and and the rest of the Jews. But Festus is a, is visited, visited by King Agrippa, and um, both Festus and Paul know that Agrippa. Uh, would be 
would have some training and would have some broad familiarity with uh, Jewish theology and the teaching of the scriptures. And so Paul very enthusiastically receives Agrippa's presence and is able now really to give a much more detailed defense against the accusation of uh, the Jews. Um, so he, um, he relates in the early part of the, the passage his own encounter with the Lord Jesus on uh, the Damascus Road. Um, just pick up with me at verse 19. He's, he's received his commission from the Lord, and he says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than that which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Uh, I want you to, to notice here that, that Paul's defense before Agrippa is that he's not teaching anything new, right? The defense is no novelty. Uh, Paul is claiming that he is teaching and proclaiming the same message that came through the prophets and Moses. So look there again at the second half of verse 22, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. And then he gives the same threefold outline of what Moses and the prophets said should come, that the Messiah should suffer, that he would rise from the dead, and that this gospel had to be preached to the nations. All right, so it's, it's one thing to get that as kind of like an abstract outline. It's a separate thing to then exercise yourself in the scriptures, and particularly the Old Testament scriptures, so that you can actually see it uh, in the concrete. From time to time, we've had occasion to see this, and we're gonna, we're gonna do some more with this probably beginning next week when we get more deeply into Abraham and how the, the older patriarchal uh, revelation of the Christ to come beginning in Genesis chapter 3 is we're going to see how it's enlarged under Abraham. So um, there's a lot of things going on in Abraham's life, but uh, one of the great things, one of the principal things is you have another revelatory watershed. Um, it does appear that you probably get as much redemptive revelation poured out in those years of Abraham's life as the whole preceding history of the world, right? So God is really pouring it out at that time. Compared to what we have now, it still seems like a comparatively 
dark age because we have a completed Bible and we live on the other side of um, the incarnation, the cross and the resurrection. But uh, in Abraham, there's going to be a massive advance. So we're going to have opportunity to look at points one and two concerning Christ and, and his redeeming work. But before um, kind of making the transition to Abraham, or maybe from Abraham's perspective looking uh, backwards, additional light is shed upon um, God's intention that the gospel would be for all of mankind, that it was never just for the Jews, even when it was largely sequestered in the in the Israelite nation. And um, This is not just about, again, like the other parts of Jesus' beautiful three-point outline, it's not just about this or that passage. Um, this is, a, this is a, an abiding and sustained theme that runs through the whole. It might seem all of the remarkable because, of course, um, for as the Old Testament is being composed, it's largely limited in its circulation to the Jewish people. And yet within it, uh, you get the constant and repeated declaration that that message of salvation uh, and the Christ to come were always intended for, uh, for the whole world. So the way I want to uh, handle chronicles in this regard, because I do think that I do think that the chronicler shows awareness and a longing for the circulation of the true religion throughout throughout the entire world. I, I wouldn't say it's his principal focus, but I I think that it's there, and eventually we will work our way back to this first chapter. In Chronicles, and hopefully uh, you'll be able to see that there's reason to think that could very well be the reason that he chose to trace the genealogy all the way back. But let's let's start with what's like with a narrower focus, and work our way out to that wider focus. Let's start with the narrowness of the southern kingdom of Judah, and then work our way out eventually to. Um, the nations, uh, a worldwide perspective. With respect to the Chronicles, remember um, there is a peculiar focus upon the southern kingdom of Judah, and that would be the immediate context for application. Flip with me in your Bibles to the last chapter in Second Chronicles. So flip all the way to the end. And this gives us um, this gives us uh, a clue, and more than a clue, this this helps us position our author in in history, and it does a lot to explain everything that's gone before and the way that he has handled the history with this peculiar focus upon the southern kingdom. Look with me at verse uh, twenty-two. So earlier in the chapter, we have we have the record of the Babylonian captivity. So if you associate the um, 
uh, the destruction of the temple with the year 586 BC or so. It's about right. Um, we're fast forwarding about a generation to 538 BC, which is when Cyrus, king of Persia, having conquered the Babylonians, gives the, um, the exiled and captive Jews liberty to return back to Judah, to return back to Jerusalem and rebuild, rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all this kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. So the writer of Chroniclers is, is living during the period of, of the Restoration. This would be the, the period of time when um, the Jews have been liberated from Babylonian captivity and they have gone back. But for those of you that know the Restoration, when they go back, uh, for the most part, they only settle in the southern kingdom. Um, you fast forward to the time of Christ some 500 years later, and what you will find is the situation in uh, the Promised Land is still very complex. You have uh, Jews in Old Judah, now known as Judea, and then just to the north of them you have Samaria of the Samaritans. But then to the north of them you have you have another settlement of Jews in Galilee. So it's kind of like a like an Oreo or a sandwich or something. You've got Jews to the north and south, and you've got Samaritans uh, in in the middle. Well, at this at this period, for the most part, it's still just in that old southern kingdom. They've gone back. If you remember from your studies in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's this initial great zeal to get the temple up and running, get it rebuilt, um, and that does a lot to explain why the chronicler tells the history the way that he tells it. So you remember, we've had occasion to observe, the writer of Samuel Kings and the writer of Chronicles, they're, they're both looking at the same history, but they're looking at it for very different reasons. The writer of Samuel Kings is writing from the perspective of the Babylonian captivity, an exile and asking and seeking to answer the question how did we end up in exile so the great lesson is is from the sins of the kings and the people that's how we ended up here um, the chronicler is going to look at that same history but he's going to have a very different set of questions from the perspective of the restoration I might characterize it like this. His question is not so much how, much how did we end up in exile, 
although his history will more than answer that as well. But it's now that we have returned, what do we do? How can, how can we live and work? How can we govern and worship in a manner that is pleasing to God positively? So it's one thing to highlight the sins that led to captivity, but it's another thing to know positively what we're supposed to be doing. And so you get elements in the Chronicles that you will not find in Samuel Kings. Um, there's a lot of, part, there's probably most overlap in the issue of what makes a good king, right? Because a good king is going to be important for God-glorifying, God-pleasing life in the land. And the Chronicler is really going to highlight the, the importance of the king in fostering true religion and supporting true and faithful worship in the land. That aspect of good kingship really comes into the foreground in Chronicles, um, I would say with greater emphasis and power even than what you get it in Kings, although it's certainly present in, in Kings. But also they have the, the practicality of who's supposed to be sitting on the throne. And so um, the chronicler is going to really highlight out of all of the tribes, the genealogy of the tribe of Judah, and he's going to follow with particular care and interest the Davidic genealogy and the line of the kings and who is the legitimate heir to the throne, even his time, even if that heir can't actually sit the throne because of, because of Persian uh, dominance. Uh, now, probably the great thing that you get in Chronicles that you really don't get in Kings is the specifics of the temple planning, which was given to David by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which included its structure, but more importantly, its worship. And the reorganization of the Levites for temple worship. So when the Levites had been atten attending a movable tabernacle, they had one set of duties. And of course, in the wilderness, that included mostly the, the hard work of packing the tabernacle up when God moved out, um, moving it, following the pillar of cloud and fire, and then setting it back up in the in the proper way. They had the care of all of these materials and this massive manual labor that was involved in that. But now they're no longer caring for a movable tent. Now they're caring for a, a settled temple. And so First uh, Chronicles 28 makes it clear that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so not David as king just doing whatever David wants with respect to the worship of God. Of course not. But David, as prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is given a plan for the reorganization of the Levites with respect to the care of the temple, like its physical care, some of its practicalities, like the porters opening and closing doors. But those porters probably also had the spiritual function of, um, I mean, I think we would call them today like examinations for the, like for the Lord's Supper like making sure um, the people were, were spiritually and ritually clean 
for participation in temple rites. So you had the porters, and then you also had the reorganization of the Levites for singers and players of instruments for the newly instituted uh, service of, of worship. All of this is described with a kind of detail that you will not get anywhere else in the Bible, which is makes it kind of a shame that Chronicles is so much neglected. But you can see, hopefully that's enough to show that we have, oh yeah, and I should say, going back to the genealogies, a lot of emphasis upon the Levites. If you remember um, in Ezra, um, Levites and priests couldn't exercise the function in, unless they can make the genealogical proof that they were properly part of the family. And if they couldn't, if they couldn't make the genealogical proof, uh, they were put away from office uh, until such a time as God could settle the matter pertaining this one or that one by means of the Urim and Thummim. Uh, whether or not that actually ever happened or not is, is hard to say, but um, ultimately God would have to settle cases when there was doubt and the records didn't exist or whatever, but genealogy is very important. And so the Levites figure very largely even in the genealogies. So hopefully uh, that's enough where you can see that um, the chronicler has an immediate interest in Judah and there's, there's tremendous practicality in it, not as over against spirituality, but uh, you know, answering the question, how do we live? How do we govern? How do we worship in a manner that is pleasing to God now that we're back? And this is one of the reasons why the chronicler, he doesn't altogether neglect um, the northern kings, but he doesn't ping pong back and forth the way that the author of kings does, doing like a, a southern king and then a northern king and then a southern king and a northern king. He doesn't do that. The, the northern kings largely come up as they come into contact with the, with the southern king, but the abiding focus is on the southern kingdom, and its spiritual welfare. Okay, but now let's expand the focus out just a little bit. Even with all of this southern kingdom focus, the northern kingdom is not forgotten. And in some ways, that's, that's remarkable when you consider the, the history Um it's remarkable in a human way, but, but when you consider divine inspiration, it's less remarkable. Maybe, maybe to try to explain that. Um, so the Northern Kingdom was carried away 727 BC, so about 150 years before, before the Southern Kingdom. And they were carried away by the Assyrian Empire. But their exile was different. The Assyrians, as conquerors, uh, tended to want the conquered people to lose their distinctive ethnic, national, and religious identity. So they tried to, like the Assyrians were trying to run a melting pot. So they would take, say, like they would take Jews out of Palestine, um, 
multitudes of them, and scatter them throughout the rest of the Assyrian Empire, and then take other conquered people and move them into Palestine so that what Jews were remaining in Palestine would then intermix with other Assyrian people. That's what produced the Samaritans, right? Part Jew, part other kind of um, Assyrian. That's one of the reasons that for the most part, not totally, but for the most part, those 10 northern tribes were lost to history. They went into the Assyrian blender, if you will, and for the most part, they did lose their distinctiveness. Um, now, remember, by that point, um, there had already been hot conflict for the better part of two centuries between the northern and southern kingdoms. So they were not friendly. I'm trying to set the stage for just how marvelous the chronicler is in some ways. So you've got two centuries of hostility. Then the northern kingdom's just gone for another 150 years. And then 50 more years later, at least, before the chronicler makes his appearance on the stage of history, And yet you find in him this longing for the restoration, not just of Judah and Benjamin and some Levites, but for all Israel, the restoration of the 10 tribes of the Northern Kingdom, which for the better part of 500 years had been either enemies or nothing as far as the Southern Kingdom Jews were concerned. Now I say that on a human level, that's, that's a remarkable thing. With respect to scripture, though, not not really, because, of course, in the prophets, the restoration of the of the northern tribes had always been prophesied and promised. You might think about the, say, the two sticks in um, in Ezekiel. So the chronicler inspired by God, but also familiar with antecedent scripture, as he obviously is, knows the promises made to the northern kingdom. And in spite of the fact that there, is not, there has not been friendliness for a very long time, his heart is enlarged toward them. He does not forget them. So turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 30. I want you to notice here, um, we know, of course, from, from Kings that Hezekiah was a most remarkable king. And um, it said that with respect to faith, there was never an another one quite like him. But in, in Chroniclers, he is portrayed as a great reformer of worship, the worship of the house of God. But in part of his reforming work, and you won't find this in Kings, he reaches back out to, um, to the Northern Kingdom and reincorporates them in temple worship just as far as they are willing. So pick up with me in Second Chronicles chapter 30. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem 
to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. It's interestingly enough, this was the very thing that Jeroboam feared, and here Hezekiah is doing it. Jeroboam, centuries before, had set up his um, his idol shrines in Dan and Bethel, the calves in Dan and Bethel, to keep northern kingdom Israelites from wanting to return to Jerusalem and perhaps in that way return to the house of David. But here Hezekiah is doing the, same, doing the very thing Jeroboam had feared, which is calling them to come down to Jerusalem, to the temple for worship. Verse 2, For the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently. Neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem. And the thing pleased the king and all the congregation. So they established a decree to make proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan, that they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not done it of a long time in such a sort as it was written. So the posts went with the letters from the king and his princes throughout all Israel and Judah, and according to the commandment of the king, saying, Ye children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. And be not like your fathers and like your brethren, trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, who therefore gave them up to the desolation, as ye see. Now be ye not stiff-necked, as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord, and enter into his sanctuary with he, which he hath sanctified for ever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if ye turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if ye return unto him. So the posts passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Nevertheless, diverse of Asher and Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was given to them one heart to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. And there assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. A very great congregation. And they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for incense took they away and cast them into the brook Kidron. Then they killed the Passover on the fourteenth day of the second month, and the priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought in the burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. And they stood in their place after their manner, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood 
which they received of the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for every one that was not clean to sanctify them unto the Lord. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The Lord God pardon every one that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. And the children of Israel that were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with loud instruments unto the Lord. And Hezekiah spake comfortably unto all the Levites that taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they did eat throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. And the whole assembly took counsel to keep other seven days, and they kept other seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, did give to the congregation a thousand bullocks and seven thousand sheep. And the princes gave to the congregation a thousand bullocks and ten thousand sheep. And a great number of priests sanctified themselves. And all the congregation of Judah, with the priests and the Levites and all the congregation that came out of Israel, and the strangers that came out of the land of Israel and that dwelt in Judah, rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people. And their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. I think um, because we live in the era of denominationalism, um, perhaps this text will be all the more marvelous in our eyes. Here there's a portrait of a, of a marvelous reunion. There had already for the better part of two centuries been separation between the northern and southern kingdoms. And now, um, at least in a measure, Northern Kingdom Israelites have been reunited with Southern Kingdom Israelites, and they have been joined together in the worship of God uh, at the temple, worshiping the one true God according to that one true God's commandments. Uh, and it's, it's such a beautiful thing that it can fetch uh, tears from the eyes. I read this one because in some ways this is very full, uh, but you will get you will get uh, references to uh, the Northern Kingdom in um, other places. You might think about uh, the Reformation under Josiah uh, later in the book. But one other thing, it's interesting in 
in spite of the southern kingdom focus in the in the genealogies northern kingdom israelites are not are not forgotten so we will find them in the genealogical record uh, they they are clearly on uh, the chronicler's heart they've been placed upon the chronicler's heart by uh, by the Holy Spirit, and so he does not, so he does not forget them. And then there's also the practical thing in keeping the genealogy, um, to be able to locate, um, to take particular families and be able to find their particular inheritances in the land. Um, that would be a very important practical function for those for those genealogies. So, in spite of the the focus upon the southern kingdom, we find that there's there is an expansiveness in the heart of the chronicler. He longs for the day of reunion with northern kingdom Israelites. Longs for their uh, re-inclusion. Um, but there's also the hope of the nations being joined with them. With this in view, turn turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter six. This is the chronicler's presentation of uh, the dedication of the temple after its building by by Solomon. So turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter six. And um, uh, pick up with me at, at, at verse 32. Moreover, concerning the stranger, which is not of thy people Israel, but is come from a far country for thy great namesake, and thy mighty hand and thy stretched out arm, if they come and pray in this house, then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name, and fear thee, as doth thy people Israel, and may know that this house which I have built is called by thy name. Isn't that isn't that beautiful? So in the dedication of the the temple and the prayer surrounding it uh, of course there's going to be a focus upon uh, that people that is already in covenant with god but there's the anticipation remember the gospel was always to go to the nations this was the teaching of the old testament we find it here at the dedication of the temple uh, flip back with me to first uh, chronicles chapter 16 so first chronicles now chapter 16 um, and this is um, uh, David is is making his his preparations for uh, the temple with all the various parts that we've talked about. Let's pick up with with verse seven, and I want you to notice that 
um, the nations are, are not forgotten in, uh, by the chronicler, even as they were not forgotten by David. Verse 7, Then on that day David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord and to the hand of Asaph and his brethren. Give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Israel, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen ones. So notice there, there is a, an immediate particular focus upon the covenanted people of God. Verse 14, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Be ye mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, even of the covenant which he made with Abraham and of his oath with Isaac, and hath confirmed the same for Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance. When ye were but few, even a few and strangers in it, and when they went from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Show forth from day to day his salvation. Declare his glory among the heathen, his marvelous works among all nations. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Glory and honor are in his presence. Strength and gladness are in his palace. Now notice this in particular. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. The world also shall be stable, that it be not moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let men say among the nations, the Lord reigneth. And so on. It's probably enough to, uh, to see the point. There is the immediate focus upon God's people. Here with David, it would be all the tribes, uh, north and south. But the, but the nations of the earth are not forgotten. And that helps us and I think gives us a perspective on the genealogy and why uh, there's, there's abundant reason for the, for the chronicler to take us all the way back to Adam, or we might even say to set Abraham in the midst of the nations of the earth, even the way that, even the way that Moses did. 
remember, as Moses develops it, Abraham is is a Shemite descendant. He is uh, presented in uh, the table of nations, so he's set in the midst of the nations. And in that immediate context, we are, we are told, if you'll remember, that the blessing that was promised to Abraham was never intended just for Abraham, but that Abraham and his children, and ultimately that great seed that would come from him, was always to be a blessing to the entire world. The blessing given to Abraham was always a treasure that was intended to run out, overflow, superabound to the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, Moses sets it in that context and expresses it clearly. It is part of Abraham's uh, story. It is a story that is evoked by the chronicler, and that great lesson is not lost on him, but something that throughout his magnificent work he, he highlights again and again. So you think back to the teaching of the Lord Jesus. I'm trying to pull my strands together here. Um, Jesus said, expect when you read the Old Testament to see Messiah must suffer, Messiah must rise, and this gospel must be preached to the nations. And we see the chronicler aware of that very thing. This gospel must be preached to the nations. So with that in view, uh, just a couple of points of application. Uh, I will be brief in words. I, I hope that you will be longer in, in reflections on it. But um, we, we live in a context and in a nation that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. Um, and it is a very easy thing for, for Christians to um, feel alienated and estranged. And in one sense, that's there's something about that that's appropriate. That's appropriate. Um, but our but our hearts ought to always be enlarged. Uh, toward our kinsmen according to the flesh. It's true we're strangers and pilgrims, and ultimately this is not our home. But remember, Paul, we, there's not a single one of us that is that has suffered at the hands of the American people the way that Paul had suffered at the hands of the Jewish people. And yet look at the way that he talks about them in the, the epistle to the Romans, his longing after the welfare of his kinsmen according to the the flesh, his desire um, for their for their redemption, and so even as we um, kind of steal ourselves for ever increasing abuse from our nation, part of that stealing ourselves ought not to be uh, the cooling of our hearts and the cooling of our affections. As a matter of fact, we ought to be stirring that up uh, all the more as the difficulty. Uh, presents itself. Think about the heart of Hezekiah toward the nother, northern kingdom. Um, before the fall of the northern kingdom, it had not been particularly friendly to 
Hezekiah. Um, so, uh, so um, we can't we can't let our hearts grow cold. We we are still part of the church of the living God, and the and the mission is still the same, which is to take the gospel into this uh, into this culture. When you think about the the reunion of the the parts of the church, sometimes the, those that are settled nearest to us irritate us the most. Um, as Reformed Presbyterians, we're frequently most frustrated with other Presbyterians, and I get that. But remember the heart of, of Hezekiah, um, that, that longing for reunification and the studying of means to accomplish it. He did not let his heart grow cold. Um, and probably we have not we have not encountered a difficulty from any Presbyterian denomination that posed as great a problem as the Northern Kingdom did from time to time to Hezekiah, and yet he he did not allow his heart to grow cold, and and neither can we. And then one one final thing, um, and I well just think about it um, as as the nation becomes more hostile to Christianity the environment also becomes more dangerous and um, the temptation is uh, to want to secure our our safety by by running away and hiding um, now I would be the last to say that when danger presents, I mean we, we, it's certainly lawful for us to shift for our for our own safety. But we shift for our own safety not just simply so that we can have more years on planet Earth, but so that we can uh, set up the gospel shop again and continue in the work. Remember the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter ten said, "When they persecute you in one city, flee to another." Not simply so you can go underground and hide there forever, but so that you can continue the proclamation of the gospel in that place. And this has always been um, uh, the practice of our people. It's commended um, uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ and the ancient witnesses and martyrs. You think about our covenanted forebears in in Scotland. Um, Obviously, the ministers were not surrendering to the authorities. When the authorities were on the prowl, they would hide themselves. And yet they weren't just hiding in the great hope that maybe I can extend my life more, more years and more years simply so I can live more years and more years and more years. But I'm, I'm going to hide, hide myself and flee to the next town where I can set up the same gospel shop and continue the work. This is something that's um, been on my mind almost since my first started to come to know the Lord 30-ish years ago. In, um, in Sproul's little book, The Essential Doctrines of the Christian Faith, he, in the introductory section, he talks about a certain kind of neo-monasticism, a certain sort of uh, cloistering away from the world, whether it's physical dangers or spiritual dangers or whatever. 
But he just points out, at the end of the day, it's really just another kind of sin. Because the Lord has told us uh, not to hide our light under the bushel, because then we can't do our job. But ultimately, we are to be a city set upon a hill, which is a really visible, really a really public thing. So we need to make sure that we're holding those things in balance. If we if we hide ourselves away and disappear from from public view so we can simply mind our own business and continue to grow things and eat and grow things and eat and grow things and eat or whatever at the end of the day if that's all that we're doing it's just another kind of sin the point in securing safety is so that you can so that you can get to the next place set up the gospel shop and keep going and if I might might say something maybe to to rouse the courage of course covenant and forebears did that but the English Puritans did this too I think I was read it years ago in uh, God's Secretaries it's a little history on the King James translators but it talked about a time of plague in London so all of the Puritans had been driven out as nonconformists and dissenters and so they'd all been ejected from the ministry and told that they couldn't come within certain miles of London and all this kind of stuff and um, Anglican curates are put in all of those places and then plague comes and the time servers flee from the city and the Puritan ministers who had been despised, rejected, ejected, and driven away go back into the danger zone. When everybody else is running away, they're running into it. And the rationale was not that, you know, we're going to be safe. Uh, that was completely in the hands of God, but rather they're there are lost people, there are suffering people, there are dying people who need Christian ministry now more than ever. And so we, we go into the danger because, because that's the mission, that's the job. And because uh, we know that our God is with us and that as we obey him, if this is an act of obedience indeed, and if we're obeying him, we're actually as safe in that place as we are in any other place in the world, safe uh, in his hand. He is able to keep us in those places. And even if that keeping is just a keeping unto uh, our rapidly approaching heaven, we are altogether satisfied with that. Wouldn't we, wouldn't we be very pleased for the Lord to come and get us at that very moment when we're exercising courage um, as part as part of a living extension of this pillar that the gospel must be preached to the nations. This ancient this ancient truth ringing down through the ages from Genesis chapter three to the present, we become living extensions of this. What a beautiful thing. What a privilege. Let us pray together.